Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 5, Christopher Slobogan, Gatekeeping Science. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is my colleague, Chris Lebogan. Chris is the Milton Underwood Professor of Law and Affiliate Professor of Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University. Chris teaches criminal procedure, criminal law, and mental health law, and his research has primarily been on the relationship between technology and the Fourth Amendment, mental disability, and other areas of criminal law. His recent article, co-authored with David Fagman at Hastings and John Monahan at Virginia, is entitled Gatekeeping Science, Using the Structure of Scientific Research to Distinguish Between Admissibility and Weight in Expert Testimony. The article is forthcoming in the Northwestern Law Review. Chris and his authors tackle a fundamental issue in Daubert. What aspects of the reliability of expert testimony are for the judge and which are for the jury? They draw on ideas from their prior work to answer this question. Chris, thanks a lot for agreeing to be on Excited Utterance. It's great to be here. Let me begin by asking you to contextualize your article a little bit. You, David, and John have done a lot of work over the years on scientific evidence, and most recently, the three of you wrote an article about the group versus individual problem, what you term the G to I problem in science. Where does this article fit into that broader project? So this article that we're talking about today is a spinoff of the earlier article. Uh, we came up with this, I guess you could call it cutesy acronym, G to I, G standing for general, I in lowercase standing for individual, and then the number two. It's meant to express the idea that there's a significant tension when scientific evidence is presented in court. Most scientific evidence is based on group data, data obtained through studies of groups, most legal cases are resolved on an individual basis, so there can be difficulty in translating this group-based information to resolve individual cases. In our article in Chicago, the earlier article discussed the fact that there probably should be different interpretations of Daubert, depending upon whether the focus is generalized scientific evidence or what we called diagnostic information aimed at resolving an individual case. This article deals with what might be considered a predicate issue, which is which entity, the judge or the jury, decides what will be considered uh, scientifically. That is, should the judge take on the role of determining reliability for every aspect of scientific evidence, or should there be a role for the jury, and if so, what should that role be? We do think there should be a role for the jury, but we think it should be a significantly limited one. So let's explore this issue of judge-jury balance. As you note in your paper, Daubert drew a line using a distinction between methods and conclusions. So the judge determines the reliability of methods, and the jury determines the reliability of conclusions. What's wrong with this particular division between judge and jury? We think the division should not have anything to do with whether something's a method or conclusion or a principle, but rather it should have everything to do with whether what's being considered is generalized information or case-specific information. Now, I think Joyner actually recognized this problem to some extent. 
Joyner has said that it's often difficult to separate conclusions and methods, and also said it's up to the judge to determine whether there's too significant a gap between methods and conclusions. So Joyner, I think, moved in the right direction. And then Rule 702, uh, I think, picked up with that idea and said that the judge has to determine whether methods were reliably applied to the facts of the case. Our problem is that both Joyner and Rule 702 were vague about the precise role the judge and the jury should play. And courts, based on our study of what courts are doing, are still very confused about this. Some courts are still adhering to this methods conclusions distinction between judge and jury. And others understand that maybe that distinction is not the right one, but they don't know what to do if they don't use that distinction. Do conclusions ever go to the jury? And if so, under what circumstances? And that's where our article comes into play. We hope to help courts resolve that issue. Do you have a sense of why the Supreme Court got it wrong in Daubert to begin with? Well, no, I don't know for sure. In some ways, there's a neatness to that methods conclusion distinction. For instance, it tends to track with what we think is a typical role of the judge and the jury. The judge is focused on process making sure the rules of evidence are abided by, making sure that the trial proceeds smoothly, whereas the jury comes down with a substantive verdict. So the methods conclusion distinction seems to track with that. But in fact, as we argue in the article, we don't think that analogy works at all. How would you reconceptualize this inquiry? You're talking about judge and jury. Judges deal with the general material. Jurors deal with the specific. Right. Can you elaborate a little bit on how that was going to work? Sure. Maybe I can use an example. Maybe that would help. One of the examples we use in the article is an expert witness who's going to testify about eyewitness testimony. And there's a fair amount of this testimony going on right now. Experts, usually psychologists, will proffer testimony that's relevant to whether an eyewitness could actually identify the perpetrator of a crime, let's say. I mean, you might get an eyewitness expert like this talking about the difficulty of making cross-racial identifications, or the extent to which memory fades over time. That kind of testimony, in the first instance, would be based on generalized scientific information. For instance, research on perception, which would be relevant to cross-racial identifications, or research on memory, which would obviously be relevant on the extent to which memory fades. And we think it's certainly up to the judge to determine whether or not the methodology and conclusions of that generalized research, what we call framework research, because it sort of sets the frame a particular area, whether that's reliable under Daubert, using the usual tools that Daubert identified. So that's rule number one for the judge. Typically, if it's an eyewitness expert, that's all the eyewitness expert will talk about, is the difficulty of cross-racial identifications and the extent to which memory fades. The expert might go a little bit further and say something like, the research shows that cross-racial identifications are, let's say, three times more likely to be inaccurate than same race identifications. That too, the judge would have to evaluate under Daubert, okay? Even though it's an expert trying to help with this particular case, that's a general fact based on general research that the judge should have to resolve. And that's usually where the expert will end testifying. But let's say the eyewitness expert wants to go further and say, and by the way, I think this particular eyewitness was inaccurate because it was a cross-racial identification and because he gave the identification four days later when his memory had faded. That sounds like a fact-specific, case-specific kind of testimony. We call that diagnostic testimony because it's diagnosing a particular situation. And therefore, perhaps under our framework, shouldn't be subjected to Daubert. We think it should in this sense, that the expert has to use some kind of methodology to translate the general information about cross-racial ID 
and memory fading to this individual case. There has to be some kind of method, whether it's just logical or maybe some scientific kind of method. We think that also should be judicially evaluated. Why? Because a method also has general applicability. A method used in this case will also be used in a subsequent case. And therefore, just like with general findings of scientific research, a general methodology ought to be something the judge evaluates the reliability of. In the eyewitness context, there actually turns out not to be a methodology that can translate the general research to an individual case. But in some areas of expertise, there are, like take a psychiatrist. Psychiatrists purport to be able to translate general information about mental disorder to an individual case, give an individual person a diagnosis. We talk about the individual's specific mental state at the time of the offense. There, too, there's a methodology being used. It may be inchoate. It may not be well thought through, but we think that the judge should demand that the psychiatrist describe coherently the methodology used to translate the general scientific research to the individual case. And if the expert can't do it, can't testify diagnostically, even if the expert can do it, the judge's role is to make sure that protocol is one that's acceptable, one that produces, on average, reliable results, or at least results that are generally accepted by the relevant group. And only then may the expert testify, and then it's up to the jury to decide whether or not the psychiatrist followed whatever protocol the judge found to be reliable. So that was the part that I wanted to get at. The jury comes in at the very end, very end. where the jury is trying to assess as you say, some kind of credibility determination. Now, I think I sympathize with the position that these general propositions should be for the judge. What I don't necessarily follow is why these specific type applications should go to the jury under what is effectively a conditional relevance standard. So in the paper, you talk about a rational jury standard. The judge basically gives it to the jury unless no rational jury could conclude that this was a reliable application of the method. Let me give you a concrete comparison for why I resist this urge a little bit. So apropos of this podcast, let's assume we want to admit hearsay under the excited utterance rule. And those preliminary facts of excitement are for the judge to determine under 104A. That's not left for the jury to ascertain. Why shouldn't the judge in the scientific or expert evidence context be the one to determine whether or not the expert reliably applied the principles to the facts in the case? Well, I think what you're raising is an issue that requires some very fine line drawing. Because we think the jury does play an important role, particularly in terms of credibility assessment. We think the jury is just as good as the judge in assessing credibility. So how does that play out in the specific context you're talking about? We agree that usually questions of preliminary fact ought to be determined by the judge, whether it's the excited utterance situation, or we talk about the dying declaration predicate, which also ought to be determined by a judge, and so on. In the scientific context, as I just got through saying, we think the judge should make sure that, in the case of the psychiatrist I was talking about, the psychiatrist uses a protocol that is known to be reliable, or at least is generally accepted. But then you're asking, okay, can the judge also be the one who determines whether that protocol is reliably applied to the facts of this case. So what does that mean exactly? We think the judge does have to find that the protocol was used. And if the judge says the protocol wasn't used, then the diagnostic testimony does not get to the jury. But what if the judge finds the protocol was used? The protocol found to be reliable by the judge was in fact used by the psychiatrist. We think the psychiatrist ought to be allowed to testify and the jury ought to be able to evaluate the credibility of the expert in the following way. The jury ought to be able to determine whether, in fact, the psychiatrist 
in using the protocol followed it closely enough to give that opinion substantive weight. And again, this is a line drawing question. The judge has to find the protocol was used, but the jury then gets to basically second guess that decision and make sure the psychiatrist followed that protocol. If it decides the psychiatrist did not follow the protocol, my guess is the jury, if it acts rationally, would say we don't abide by the opinion. Even if the jury agrees the protocol was followed, of course, the jury might end up saying, so what? We don't care what the psychiatrist says. We think he or she is wrong for any number of reasons. So I guess that's where we come out. We think the jury should maintain a role, though as I think you suggested in your question, it should be permissible for the judge to find that no rational jury could ever find that despite the fact that the psychiatrist reported to be using a reliable protocol, this psychiatrist did not. The judge should be able to make that finding and take that issue away from the jury. Let's talk a bit about application. And in many ways, some of your answers to my earlier questions developed a little bit of this. But I think one of the useful parts of the article is that you develop a four-category breakdown of scientific evidence, which I've really never seen before in the literature and I think will help courts to assess the different kinds of scientific evidence that are out there. I think generally speaking, People think about expert evidence as some kind of monolithic whole, and it's not. Expert evidence or scientific evidence have different aspects depending on what kind of level of generality you're talking about. Can you say a little bit more about those four categories? Sure. Well, the title of the article is Gatekeeping Science Using the Structure of Scientific Research to Distinguish Between Admissibility and Weight in Expert Testimony. What you're referring to is our definition of what the structure of scientific research is. And you're right, we come up with four different categories. The first category being basic research, the second being framework research, the third being application of a method to describe diagnostic testimony to a jury, and then finally, assessment of diagnostic testimony. And basic research is research that deals with the big questions in science. Clearly, this is generalized research in the relativity theory, for instance, as an example. Research on memory is another example, going back to the example I used before. So what's the difference between basic science and the next category, which is framework science? Not much. I mean, they're both general. Framework science is applied science. It's taking the concepts of basic science and making it more usable for everyday life. So for instance, there's the general research on memory, but then there's the more specific framework research that gets down to the nitty-gritty of how quickly memory fades, what can make memory less accurate, the kinds of things that can taint memory and so on. Then the third category, what we've talked about already, is research on how we translate basic science and framework evidence and research to an individual case. And again, we claim that that is generalized science because those methods are applicable from case to case. They cut across cases. The way a psychiatrist diagnoses a particular case is a method that is applicable from case to case. We think that's generalized import and also is something the judge should look at. And then finally, we've got what we just got through talking about, application of this diagnostic methodology to an individual case. And there generally think the jury should play the significant role. Though again, if the judge finds that no rational jury could find that what the expert did was reliable because the protocol was not followed in any way, shape, or form, then the judge could take that issue as well away from the jury. So that's the structure of scientific research, and we think it maps on to how Daubert and Joyner and Rule 702 should be interpreted in terms of the judge-jury role. 
Let me press you a little bit on this category. And of course, obviously, at the boundary, categories often break down. What do we do with case-specific expert choices? For example, you have a statistician in an employment discrimination case, and that statistician is going to make choices about the control variables used in the model. Is that choice a, what you term in the paper as category three, but generalized diagnostic type of scientific evidence? Or is that the specific application that is for the jury? Right, I would call that category three. The expert is making a choice as to the method for determining how his diagnosis will be reached. So let's say there's accepted way of analyzing the statistical problem you're talking about that other judges have also found to be reliable. If the expert adheres to that, then category three is met. But what if the expert makes an idiosyncratic choice, decides to enter other variables? Then the judge is going to have to make a determination, once again, whether that's okay. Whether it's okay to vary from this already accepted technique in the way that this expert does. If the judge finds, no, it's not acceptable, it doesn't get to the jury. If the judge does find it's acceptable, even though it veers from the already accepted protocol, then the jury could hear it. And the jury would again get to second guess whether the expert in fact did follow the right protocol. But it would be up to the judge in the first instance to make sure the protocol is reliable. So if I understand it, the jury's role here is quite limited, or Very at least limited. to the extent that we view expert evidence or the expert evidence inquiry in conventional terms, where you see a role for the jury remains a very small right. part of the puzzle. To, to maybe to put a finer point on it, one role the jury could have, and it's a small role, is what if the expert says he or she did X, Y, and Z? If he did X, Y, and Z, that's perfectly okay as far as the judge is concerned, as far as science is concerned. It is the acceptable protocol. The jury, though, can decide on its own, no, you know what, he's lying when he said he followed X, Y, and Z. He may have done X, but he didn't do Y and Z, therefore, we're not gonna pay any attention to it. And that is, a, I think, a traditional role the jury should carry out. The last part of your article talks about appellate review. So how does general versus specific affect appellate review? I think very significantly. As you know, Joyner held that appellate court should give deference to trial court decisions about admissibility under Daubert. But we disagree with that decision along the same lines that we've already been talking about. That we think if it's a matter of general application, if it's a decision about basic science, framework science, or diagnostic methodology, category three, that is a decision of general application will apply not just to this particular case, but to cases across the board. And that's precisely the kind of decision that the appellate court should deal with. It's a lot like legal precedent. Legal precedent applies across the board. So do all these general decisions about scientific information, whether it's about the conclusions of science or the methodology scientists use to reach a diagnostic opinion. So we disagree with Joyner, and we think all these decisions should be de novo at the appellate level. I greatly sympathize with that view. I think I've long thought that most expert evidence decisions, particularly at the general level, should be assessed in a uniform way across the jurisdiction, and therefore there should be de novo review. As I take your position, though, there's no room for the abuse of discretion standard anymore then. So what we have is generalized science, which is then reviewed de novo because it's generally applicable and should be treated like precedent. And we have specific applications which are left to the jury. It's not even in an evidentiary sense the same as other evidentiary rulings mm -hmm. that are reviewed abuse of discretion. 
Well, yeah, because it's like legal precedent. I guess the one situation where the abuse of discretion standard might apply is in that small group of cases we alluded to earlier where the judge says no rational jury could decide that the expert followed the procedure he said he followed. That might be a situation where the abuse of discretion standard would apply. But you're right. Otherwise, the appellate court is totally in control. And I think that's the way it should be if you buy this analogy to legal precedent. And in fact, even if you think about it in that context, whenever we break out the no rational jury standard, say on summary judgment or some kind of directed verdict, that also is reviewed de novo. Basically, you've sealed off trial judge discretion as a result of the way that you frame the article. One final question for you, Chris, before we wrap up. Do you and your co-authors have future plans in this area? I take it that this is part of a broader project? Yeah, this is a project that grew out of the MacArthur Network on neuroscience, and we ended up deciding that we needed to deal with an issue that neuroscientists have to deal with all the time. The neuroscience research results in general findings. Well, how do those apply to individual cases? That's obviously not a problem that just affects neuroscience. It affects all science, as we've been talking about. So we wrote the original article thinking maybe that's it, but then we, we realized, no, there's this judge-jury problem. I enjoy immensely working with David Figman and John Monaghan, and I hope we do do another project together. What precisely that project would be, I'm not sure, but one thing that could come up is getting into more of the nuances that you were asking me about in the last part of this interview. Is there any role for the abuse of discretion standard, for instance? What more precisely is the jury's role in specific kinds of cases? That would be, I think, a much more fine-tuned kind of article, not a general conceptual article so much, but I think it's worth playing out those issues so we can help courts work through this difficult area. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Always fun to talk in depth about Daubert issues. Well, thank you very much, Ed. I enjoyed it. As I mentioned in the interview segment, Chris's work with David Fagman and John Monahan develops a useful insight about scientific evidence, which is that science operates at different levels of generality. As we know, levels of generality also animate much of evidence law. The reason why many evidentiary determinations, such as Rule 403 determinations, are discretionary and reviewed under an abusive discretion standard is precisely because they are case-specific and context-dependent. By contrast, other determinations have broader import, such as whether lie detectors are admissible, and many appellate courts have accordingly reviewed these broader questions de novo. Chris's article has taken a useful first step toward mapping scientific levels of generality with legal approaches to generality. As he recognizes, there are further details to work out, but I am looking forward to whether their map can give greater clarity to courts handling Daubert determinations. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Excited Utterance is sponsored in part through a grant from the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.